Today on Hearing is Believing. The Bible says over and over again that the assurance of faith comes by living this life of dependence upon God, not trusting in our self-efforts, not trusting in our good deeds, but wholly leaning and trusting on what God provides. Connecting contemporary culture to the timeless truths of God's Word. This is Hearing is Believing. And during these past few months, we have had more and more time to realize just either how much time we don't have or how much time we have. And I felt both of, both of those emotions during these days. I don't know if you have, but I definitely have felt both of those emotions. Some days I couldn't believe that it was only Tuesday. And now here it is, September, almost mid-September. I don't know, somebody in my neighborhood's already started to put up the Christmas lights. Maybe I understand, I don't know. But either way, we've had a lot of time to think about where we've been. And the quarantine has given me a moment of deep introspection. And I was encouraged by what I saw in my own life, all the while knowing that I needed more discipline in my own life. I keep hearing, I kept hearing, and I keep hearing the words of Dr. Charles Stanley. I remember at one of the chapel services that he was uh, giving us, he was giving us a message that the Lord had laid upon his heart. I think he turned it into a book one day, but anyway, he laid out three things that we needed to be successful. A clean heart, a balanced schedule, and a clear mind. A clean heart, a balanced schedule, and a clear mind. And I kept hearing that all along the time of the pandemic, trying to think through, okay, what are you telling me, God? And as the pandemic hit, messages began to surface. Messages began to surface about using the time wisely. You heard messages saying, draw closer to the Lord, make the most of the days. And I remember early on, I think it was March when this article was released, uh, a story ran by the Washington Post with a headline. Listen to this headline. During a pandemic, Isaac Newton had to work from home too, and he used his time wisely. The article goes on to report that it was during the Great Plague of London of 1665. Newton was in his 20s, and he was a college student. During that pandemic, he developed all sorts of theories, including something that would later be called calculus, optics, and a little thing called the theory of gravity. And so Newton, he, uh, the article says, he returned to Cambridge in 1667, and he had his theories in his hand. Within six months, he was made a fellow. Two years later, he was made a professor. <laughs> and that article hit right at the beginning of the quarantine. And so I just want to ask you this evening, what did you do during the pandemic? Well, not all of us can be Isaac Newton, of course, but all of us hopefully will have said that we desire to use our time wisely. And so hopefully we'll go beyond saying we desire to use it wisely. Hopefully we'll say, you know what, I have been using my time wisely. I, for one, was so grateful, so grateful for the time spent with Katie and the kids. Um, some talk about things going back to normal, but honestly, I'm not quite certain that I'm ready for things to go back to the fast pace of normal that they were. So as we prepare to come out of a pandemic, and that's what we're all preparing for, we're here, we're all preparing to come out of a pandemic, there are several stories, and I'm sure you're aware of these, that have been circulating uh, 
about the collapse of Christianity in America. Have you heard these stories? Just go to NPR and you can read a host of them if you'd like. But there are stories about the collapse of Christianity in America. My favorite NPR headline from uh, uh, May of 2020 was, Things Will Never Be the Same, How the Pandemic Has Changed Worship. So church has been closed, and many in our society, they're wondering, what good is the church? As churches have been closed, the question that keeps lingering in our minds, at least in my mind, is, is anyone going to notice? Is anyone going to miss what once was. We can calculate over the years and we can see, and you've heard these because we've talked about them here at this church, attendance numbers on, on churches all over America for the past 10 years have been in a decline. And the trends of church attendance, they tell a story of a culture wanting of the influence of a biblical worldview. And the pandemic has, in my opinion, seemingly added fuel to the fire of the secular forces that threaten the foundation of our society. Now, let me be very clear when I say that. By secular forces, what I mean is uh, secular forces, I mean those forces that are contrary to the biblical worldview. Those forces that are contrary to a theistic worldview. And here's my conviction. I'm not too certain that we, and I'm talking in-house to us Christians, I'm not certain that we've done well in our gospel expression, listen carefully to this, to put forth a robust ecclesiology. Now, what on earth is ecclesiology? Well, ecclesiology, I'm going to have a little slide here for you, tells you how to say it. It doesn't help me much, but anyway, maybe it'll help you. Ecclesiology, what I mean by that is that word simply means the biblical teaching of the church. It's from the Greek ekklesia, which is where we get the word church. And so I'm not too sure that we, and I'm talking about in-house, have done well in our gospel expression to put forth a robust ecclesiology during these pandemic days. You say, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. Gathering together is essential to the church. Gathering together is extremely important. You cannot have a church unless the church is gathered. We were in a moment, and in some case we still are in a moment, of our gathering being providentially hindered. Virtual church came at a time of ecclesiastical crisis. And the ecclesiological crisis is linked, I believe, to a diminished view of Scripture. And let me understand what I mean by a diminished view of Scripture. By a diminished view, I'm not necessarily referring to saying that we believe in the Bible, but by actually believing Scripture. And what does it mean to actually believe Scripture? Believing Scripture means patterning our behavior, patterning our hopes, patterning our uh, affections, patterning our churches after uh, Scripture. And remember, the reason, scripture, the reason church is so important is because when we gather together, how we gather together, what we do when we gather together is an expression of what we understand the Bible to teach about church. So it's important, especially as the world looks on, especially as the outside society looks in on us. It's important for us to express faithfully and truly the doctrines of Scripture. And if we're going to do that, it means that we have to be disciplined. 
as we take our thoughts captive and place them under the obedience of Christ. But doing so also means humility. There are, I'm going to say this, and I hope you'll agree with me without any hesitation, there are other faithful expressions of Christian churches besides Baptist. We are Baptist not because we believe that Methodists are not Christians. We just humbly believe that they get their ecclesiology wrong. And so that's why you have a big pretty building over here and a big pretty building down there and another one over here. We're united in Christ, but we express that differently. And so our charge is to, in humility, say we are hoping to get this right. And the way that we hope to get this right is through Holy Scripture. Remember this. This is why it's so important for us to think about this. The hope that God has called us to is a hope that's not just for a moment, but for every moment. It's not just just for every moment even, but it's for eternity. And so such a hope means that we have to take serious the call that God has placed towards us. And so this pandemic moment that we're in is a moment of clarification of gospel expression, not the collapse of Christianity. When we hear news over and over again that suggests things like Christianity is dying, I want to encourage you to remember where your hope lies. Christianity can never die because Jesus can never die. And this one who once died and rose again lives to cause men who were once born to be those who become the twice born. What does the Bible say? Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will never prevail. In other words, we're not on the defensive, we're on the offensive and have been so since Jesus filled us with the Holy Spirit and told us to go into all the world. And so the news that our culture is rapidly changing and becoming increasingly secular should cause us to engage with our society, not to recluse from the society, not to be reclusivistic and get inside our holy huddles, because we, God has entrusted us as lights in the world to shine the light of the world. And the longer the night, the more glorious the morning. And so what's going on in our society? Do we face major challenges? Of course we do. The challenges are there, but it's been there for every generation of the church. And it's going to be that way until Jesus comes back. And remember, remember this. When the Lord called His disciples to go into Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. Remember this. In Palestine, when they received that call, there was 120 of them. And they were outnumbered 30,000 to one. But they, with their determined faithfulness, spread the gospel across the world like wildfire. And you and I are able to stand here at this spot today with the fruit of them taking the gospel seriously. We're able to be here and pray in a chapel, in a a sanctuary like this, because they took it seriously. There was a lot against the church, but there was everything for the church. And let me say this emphatically. 
Our days are filled with challenges, but our days are not filled with uncertainty. The days ahead are challenging, but they're not uncertain. We have faced, as Christians, we've faced pandemics before. We have faced lockdowns and fines, and and we have faced uh, uh, secularism. But the gospel army keeps marching onward and upward because of who we confess and who is the wind beneath our wings. On the rise in our society are these group, a so-called group called the nuns. Have you heard about the nuns? Not N-U-N-S, but the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. These are those who have no religious affiliation. They're called the nuns. They have no religious affiliation. But Ed Stetzer, and it used to be at Wheaton, I don't know where he is now, but anyway, he points out the surge of the nuns is, listen, this is important, the surge of the nuns is because nominal Christians are giving up the pretense of faith while convictional Christians remain faithful. So in other words, why are these nuns rising? He says because finally those that call themselves Christians who are just nominal about it, those who call themselves Christians but are not Christians, they're fading away. While those that are holding firm to biblical convictions are remaining the same. And so what we see collapsing all around us in our society, what we see collapsing all around us is what so easily crumbles. The false deities that we've erected, and we've called them Christian, but they're not Christian. Those flimsy cultural expressions that we've attached to true confession, those are the things that are crumbling. And as they crumble around us, we simply say, good riddance. Because now we have a fresh moment. As culture changes, cultural expressions are going to change. But listen, don't be afraid of that, because cultural expressions cannot overcome the gospel. The the cultural expressions have changed from from uh, from the first thousand years of the church to the second thousand years of the church, and they're going to change. But you know what remains the same? The gospel of Jesus Christ. It remains the same. New challenges, we face them headlong with the conviction that the gospel never changes, but our expression of that gospel changes, but the core of the gospel message never changes. And so this moment, I'm so excited about this moment because this moment is a fresh moment of clarification. There are those who were nominal and cultural Christians that filled our pews, and because of corona, they will never be back. Not the way that they were at first, at least. But there's also a harvest of souls that have never seen Christianity. In our days... Our days could be the greatest opportunity of a generation to see a reaping of righteousness. Could it be, and I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but could it be that God will cause the fires of the coronavirus to burn away the chaff of the church to give us a fresh opportunity for gospel clarity? And I pray so. 
And so over the next few weeks, what I want to do is I want us to go to 1 Timothy. And go ahead and take your Bible there, if you wouldn't mind, and join me in 1 Timothy. And what I want us to do is I want us to focus on why Paul wrote this letter to this young minister. I think about Paul. Paul's days of ministry, they didn't come with a housing allowance. They didn't come with cultural acceptance. Instead, he wrote to Timothy while being imprisoned for saying that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And even then, in Paul's day, there were more faithful expressions of Christianity and less faithful expressions of Christianity. And there were people in Paul's day, believe it or not, who were parading around as Christians who, in fact, were not Christians. They had the form of godliness, but they deny the power therein. These individuals swerved and wandered away, and to use Paul's words, they made shipwreck of their faith. And through looking at the message of 1 Timothy, I want to encourage you to be none of these who swerve away and make shipwreck of your faith. And so let's focus tonight on where this series is coming from, and it's coming right from 1 Timothy. We're going to read verses 18 through 20 of chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, as this introductory sermon begins, as we look at this passage, we pray the Holy Spirit would guide our hearts safely and securely to the shores of your eternity. And our desire, even in this moment, is to guard ourselves as you guide us along, entrusting ourselves to the Spirit's power. In the name of the Son, to the glory of the Father, and all of God's people said, Amen. So I've entitled this sermon series, Safe to Shore. And what didn't make on the screen is the subtitle, 12 Principles to Keep Your Faith Off the Rocks. And I'm taking that right from uh, the Paul's letter to Timothy. And I'm going to take those 12 principles from just a rough outline of the points that Paul makes through the book of Timothy. And so a key question, then, if you think about that title, Safe to Shore, 12 Principles to Keep Your Faith Off the Rocks, A key question becomes apparent. How can someone make shipwreck of their faith? You say, wait, can someone make shipwreck of their faith? I I thought that salvation from beginning to end was all of God. How can someone make shipwreck of their faith? Listen, Christian confession, remember this, don't ever forget this. It has eternal implications. Christian confession is not simply a way to life. Christian confession is a way of 
life. And so think about how can someone make shipwreck of their faith. There's so many warning passages in Scripture. So many warning passages that encourage genuine confession. For example, Jesus one time, He gave a parable of the souls where He warned against the seed falling on the rocky soil. Remember what He said? He said, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself. He endures for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately he falls away. He falls away. And so Jesus' call in Matthew, and any call, is there for endurance. In other words, we're called in Scripture to make our calling and election sure. And in that same passage where Peter says, make your calling and election sure, he says, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Same word that he heard from Jesus about falling away. And so what are those qualities in 2 Peter that ensure that we're never going to fall away? If we had time, we'd look over there. But let me give you the short list. It's virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And so Peter says, if you practice these qualities, you're never going to fall. And Hebrews even warns about the dangers of drifting. That language again, it fits so nicely with that shipwreck that Paul uses. The, the author of Hebrews says that he warns us not to drift away from the truth. And so there's this pattern that's set in Scripture that directly confronts a casual Christianity. That was one of the first books that I ever got from uh, Charles Stanley, by the way. I'll have to show it to you one day in my office. It's uh, I think that he would like for it to disappear, but anyway, because of the picture on the front, it's, it's 1970-something, he's in his suit. Anyway, it's called Confronting Casual Christianity. But the point of that is there's a pattern set in Scripture that confronts a casual version of Christianity. And some of you might say, well, golly, how can we ever be sure? If there's all these warnings about falling away, how can we ever be assured that we're in the faith? And the Bible says over and over again that the assurance of faith comes by living this life of dependence upon God, not trusting in our self-efforts, not trusting in our good deeds, but wholly leaning and trusting on what God provides. Now, that doesn't mean, understand this, that doesn't mean that just because we're trusting in Jesus, we can go out and do whatever we want with whoever we want with. Trusting in Jesus means walking steadfastly with Him. Faith in God enables and empowers our obedient walking with Him. And if we're out of step with God, then we're not professing faith. And let me say this to you. You and I can know that we have eternal life. And if you just want to know how you can know, go to the first letter of John where John says, I write these things to you so that you may know that you have everlasting life. But then you know what he does? He goes out and he spells out markers that you can know, that you know that you have eternal life. And what are those markers? Those markers relate with exactly how you think, how you act, how you live, how you walk. 
So this Christian confession is not just a way to life, it's a way of life. And all of those deeds performed in faith, they're evidences of a relationship with God. So Jesus then calls us to walk with Him. He calls us to take up our cross daily and follow Him. And the way that we express our internal, the way that we express our eternal confession is moment by moment. Think about what a privilege that is. You express your eternal hope moment by moment, day by day. In each moment, you and I have this wonderful privilege of drawing close to God. And you know, have you done that? Have I done that? During these days when we thought we had more time than we've ever had, but realized we probably didn't have as much time as we thought we had. Have we done that during these pandemic days? Are we taking the time to enjoy the benefits, the inward assurance, the peace that passes all understanding, the power and authority that comes from living a life not ordered by fear or regret, anger or anxiety, but by faith in the risen, in the crucified, risen, and coming again, Lord. Moment by moment, you get the privilege, I get the privilege in the power of the Spirit to draw close to God. Are we training our children? Are we training the next generation to hope in God and live for eternity? Because they look and they see us doing that. They see us hoping in God. They see us living for eternity moment by moment. Or, or, or are we drifting away? Maybe it's a subtle drift. But a subtle drift over time will result in you realizing that you're nowhere where you thought you'd be and you have no idea how to get back. Jesus loves us. And so he warns us. He says, come and follow me. As we begin this new series, I hope that we will take a fresh opportunity this fresh opportunity that that God has providentially provided by this moment in our history, this pandemic moment, to ensure that our hearts are seeking the Lord. And so there are just three truths that I want to point out from this text this evening. Three truths, and they're all related to safeguarding your faith from shipwreck. All three of these points are related to safeguarding your faith from shipwreck. Number one. Set out with proper expectations. If you want to not shipwreck your faith, set out with the proper expectations first. The Christian life, look at what he says here in verse, uh, in verse uh, 18. The Christian life is compared to warfare. Do you see that? In 2 Timothy, Paul's going to use two more images. He's going to talk about not only warfare, but he's going to talk about a soldier and an athlete and a farmer. And all of those images have something in common. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. They all speak of a difficult, worrisome, but worth every minute task. Fighting takes courage and grit. Farming takes patience and determination. 
Competing takes discipline and tenacity. And all of these characteristics are part of what it means to follow Jesus. According to Open Doors, this is another headline. Eleven Christians are killed every day for their decision to follow Jesus. Eleven a day. We're not at war with the world. The world is at war with us. And that's an important perspective to remember because so many of us are fighting fundamentalists. We're ready to go take the war to the enemy. But remember the way that Jesus took the war to the enemy. He gave his life and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Paul was quick to point out that we wrestled not against flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. And remember, Paul's writing to Timothy from a cell. And there's one instance that we remember where Paul actually shut himself back into prison so that somebody else could be saved. He was not raging to avoid persecution, but he understood that persecution was simply par for the course. And after all, the paradigm for us is a Savior who was crucified. And the servant's not greater than his master. And crucifixion was the experience of Christ. But crucifixion was not the only experience of Jesus, was it? After the cross came the grave. After the grave came the resurrection. And what came after the resurrection? There came a crown. And we, as Christ's servants, are called to be like Him. And so this perspective helps us as we think about serving Jesus. Serving Jesus, what does it mean? It means digging in. It means setting yourself against the grain of popular opinion, of popular expression. And so our bearings are set with the right expectation. We're heading for glory, but before glory comes a cross. Number two, cling to Christian confession. Cling to Christian confession. So look at this. Timothy, in verse 18, he's entrusted with a responsibility. What is the responsibility? Well, to find out, we have to see how Paul used that phrase in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Listen to what he says. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge, same word that he used in verse 18, is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And then look at what he says in verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And so what's the entrustment that Paul has entrusted Timothy with? The entrustment is to keep true doctrine. And keeping true doctrine is not done in a library. It's done on a battlefield. The battlefield is in the hearts of the people that we encounter. 
And this is why two key phrases are mentioned in this passage at verse 19. Faith and a good conscience. Listen to what one commentator said, Towner. He says this, Faith is that posture of trust in God that animates the individual's personal relationship with God. Faith is that posture of trust in God that animates the individual's Individual person's relationship with God. And then he goes on and he says this. Towner says, The good conscience is the organ of decision by which the Christian may move from knowledge of the faith and sound teaching to appropriate conduct. It is an ethical description of what the Spirit does within the believer to apprehend God's law. Faith and a good conscience. Notice the order. Faith comes first, and then comes the good conscience. The Spirit operates through faith to produce a good conscience. And so the result of rejecting faith and a good conscience, look at it. The result of rejecting faith and a good conscience is shipwreck. It's disaster. The conscience is the center of our emotions through which the Holy Spirit guides, assures, and convicts. And those who have rejected faith and a good conscience are those who have hardened their hearts from the Spirit's guidance. Number three this evening, if we're to ensure that our faith is to make it safe to shore, number three, we're to keep company with like-minded people. Keep company with like-minded people. You see how countercultural that sounds? What good is a yes man? What good is someone who's going to tell you that you're thinking just like they are? Be different. Be bold. Be unique. Point number three, if we're going to make it safe to shore, we have to keep company with like-minded people. That's what the Scripture says. People that hold firm to a firm, hold firm to a solid confession, a uh, confession that is like-minded, a common confession. And I want to I connect two things for you, and you may not see them, but I want to let you see them, and you'll forever not see them. There's a connection between the, prophet, between the phrase, the prophecies previously made about you, and I have handed them over to Satan that they may be told not to blaspheme. You say, what on earth is the connection between prophecies made about you, Timothy, and uh, I've handed him over to Satan. What's the connection? Both of those connections both relate to experiences in the church. That first phrase, the prophecies previously made about you, you know what that is? That refers to Timothy's experience at his ordination. When he was set apart for the gospel ministry as people prophesied over him, they confirmed the call that God has in his life, and they sent him out. But then this next phrase, handed them over to Satan. Paul tells of the excommunication from the church of Hymenaeus and Alexander. But notice this connection. God uses Satan in their excommunication to bring them back to him. 
You see that? He, he, just like Job, he uses Satan to bring back his wayward children. So we have ordination in one, in one passage, and then right underneath it we have church discipline. And what's both intended to accomplish? Both are intended to accomplish the progress of the gospel. So follow the progression. Shipwrecked faith means letting go of faith and a good conscience. It means blaspheming, leaving the fight of faith. And a shipwrecked faith reveals a faith that was never truly on course to begin with. I had a preacher say it more eloquently than I. Faith that fizzles was flawed from the first. But God has put a safeguard to ensure the progress of the faith. And you know what the safeguard is? It's the church. The church. This ragamuffin group of the ones that Paul said, just think about your own calling. You're not many noble. You're not many wise. You're not the smartest. You're not the brightest. Sometimes I think he was writing about me. You're not the richest. There are 10,000 other people that I could have called, that I could use, that I could have set apart. But you know what? God chose you. The plan that God uses to safeguard the world from derail is the church. We're salt. We're light in a dark and putrefying society. And to ensure the progress of the faith, God has put the church. He has ordained the church. And so the way that we arrive safe to shore is together. Together. The spirit of our age is going to try to tell you that virtual church is the same thing as real church. And those who fall prey to that notion are those who are severely off course. The spirit of our age will try to tell you that all that matters is your personal relationship with God. A personal relationship with God means, desire, means that you will desire to build a community with other like-minded people who have their hopes, who have their, the same hopes set on something beyond themselves. We need each other if we're going to make it safe to shore. And it's my prayer. It's my prayer that this series demonstrates the need that we have for one another. The need that we have for the church, as well as a call to the church. To be all that she can be. To be all that we can be. As we faithfully represent our Savior to the world. You're listening to Hearing is Believing. For more information or to contact us, please visit hearingisbelieving.org.